0: Thanks, Pat. <clears throat> I'm hopeful that my voice gets through this and then that it recovers before speaking to us tomorrow. Uh, how many of you were not here for the sessions earlier today? Can I see? Okay. This guy here. People on the left. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that helps to know that. <coughs> Amen. Well, it's an honor to address you guys. Uh, so, we have pastors and elders primarily, some other leaders, and anyone who's welcome to come, seminary, potential seminary students, and so forth. Okay. Well, all of you know someone, I'm sure, who used to be in the ministry. And probably most of you know someone who shouldn't be in the ministry. And almost every minister knows another minister, if not several, you don't want to be like. But the sad news is that regardless of your age or education or experience, it is almost inevitable that you will become the kind of minister, elder, or leader that today you don't want to be. So I think it is important to address this subject of not blowing it. Uh, or I'd call it the almost inevitable ruin of every minister and how to avoid it. <clears> H.B. <throat> London, a f- focus on the family, uh, said that 1,500 men leave the ministry every month, and that five years after commencement, Fully half of all seminary grads are no longer in the ministry. And a Southern Baptist denominational leader once came to Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City where I was teaching. And asserted that statistics show that for every 20 men who enter the ministry, by the time those men reach age 65, one will still be in the ministry. Despite all the commitment with which they began the race, despite all the investment of time and money to prepare, despite the years of time spent in service, despite the cost of retooling and redirecting their lives uh, afterward, nearly all will leave the ministry. Some will opt out for health reasons. Some will wash out in their private lives. Some will bow out realizing they misread the call of God. Some will bail out because of the stress being so great. Some will be forced out by their churches. Some will walk out just from a sense of frustration and failure. And if you haven't given thought to leaving the ministry or the eldership or leadership position, then you haven't been in it very long, obviously. But despite the fact that no one goes into ministry, no one goes into leadership for the purpose of leaving it, the reality is nearly all do. But if you're not feeling bad enough, it gets worse than that. In addition to the high percentage of men who do leave the ministry, of those who stay in, sometimes it appears that most of those have been ruined in other ways. They may get ruined by money, either the desire for it or the lack of it. They make far too many choices based upon getting more money, or they smolder in their attitude toward their church because they don't get paid enough. Or they may get ruined by sex. I have a publication... In my files, it says 25 to 35 percent of ministers are involved in inappropriate sexual behavior at some level. And even when it's unknown to others, their preoccupation with sex or pornography so absorbs their attention that their true spiritual impact is ruined. Or they may get ruined by power. They become authoritarian. The men have started out that way. In fact, perhaps they got that way because they were so faithful to one place of ministry for so long that the sin came upon them gradually. Or maybe they discovered that denominational work or administration was something they really enjoyed. And after a while, they enjoyed serving their political appetites more than Christ. They enjoyed pulling strings more than Preaching sermons to get in the inner circle of the right people, to be able to place people in positions or keep people out of influential positions, to be among the first to get inside information became the ministry to these men. Or they may get ruined, not just money or power, but sex or pride being another. The greater the influence God gives them, the greater they become in their own sight. And the more they deserve, the more they believe they deserve this influence. But you know, it may be that pride is the sin that not only God, but men hate most. And regardless of their knowledge or their abilities, they aren't loved or admired. They may get the admiration of the ignorant or of the undiscerning or of those who want to piggyback on the power of such men, but they will not get it from the godly. Or they may get ruined by cynicism. I mean, when you spend a great deal of time around ministers like I've just described, it's pretty natural that those kind of guys would make you cynical. When you're around ministers who've been ruined by some degree to money, sex, power, and pride, no wonder you get cynical. In addition, you deal week in and week out with people who claim to be Christians but often don't act like like it. You deal with people who sometimes treat you worse than the world does. And when you've ministered for years and you see little apparent fruit in the lives of those you've given your life for, it's easy to become cynical. No one's testimony thrills you anymore. No book moves you. No sermon motivates you. And some who stay in get ruined by success. They become CEOs, not shepherds. They become managers, not ministers. Their model is business with its emphasis on numbers and units and products and marketing and customers rather than a family with its emphasis on love and relationships and new births and maturity. Or a farm with its emphasis on sheep, fruit, and growing things. So in some cases, most cases in fact, ruin results in men leaving the ministry. In some cases, they remain, but get ruined nonetheless, and they become something that today they don't want to become. You see them politicking their way through denominational life or church life, and and you say, Lord, I don't ever want to become like that. You overhear their cynicism in conversations, and you say to yourself, Lord, please don't ever let me become like that. You perceive their sense of self-importance when you meet them. And they tell you where they serve. And in your mind you say, boy, I don't ever want to become like that. You bring up spiritual matters and you get the clear impression that they'd rather talk about something else. They're more interested in other things than the things of God. And you recall and you say, Lord, please, I don't ever want to become like that. You hear them preach in their arrogant attitude or their worldliness or their lack of earnestness or their professionalism or their hypocrisy. Causes you silently to pray over and over, Lord, please don't ever let me become like that. The bad news is you will. It's almost inevitable. That's you in 20 years. You will either become like that or you will make progress. There's no middle ground. And it's always been that way. When the Apostle Paul was inspired to write the letters we call the pastoral epistles, those letters written to instruct ministers. many who had entered the ministry were already ruined. In First Timothy 1 six, there were ministers who had turned aside to fruitless discussions. In 119, some had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In chapter four verse two, he warned ministers warned of ministers filled with the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Chapter 6, verse 4, he told Timothy to watch out for the minister who is conceited and understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. Chapter 6, verse 5, he spoke of the hold money had on these ministers. For he says they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, he warned Timothy to avoid ministers characterized by worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and gone astray from the faith. In Second Timothy 1.15, Paul names two ministers who turned away from me. In chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, he speaks of ministers whose talk will spread like gangrene. Then he names two such ministers who have gone astray from the truth. Chapter 3, verse 5, he warns of ministers who are holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Chapter 3, verse 8, these ministers are men who oppose the truth. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul speaks of ministers who will teach in accordance to the desires of people who will not endure sound doctrine. And in Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he described many ministers as rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And in chapter 116, he warned of ministers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I remind you, he warned ministers like us of these things because it had already happened to people in his lifetime who had gone into ministry. And God inspired and preserved such words for ministers of every generation like ours because terrible things still happen like this to ministers and ruin them. And there is an almost inevitable ruin of every minister. And it will happen to you unless you avoid ruin by making progress. How do you make progress in the ministry instead of shipwreck? Paul wrote to Timothy, thus God to us in 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Well, what are these things, in 1 Timothy 4.15, which we are to take, which if we do take pains with them, will make our progress evident to all. Well, in the larger context, these things, he quotes, are the things Paul has written about in the first letter to Timothy, and ultimately we say in all three of the pastoral epistles. In the immediate context... It's the discipline Paul commends to every minister in verses six through sixteen, and these are summarized, I think, in the last verse of this chapter, First Timothy four sixteen. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. There's that phrase again. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So, summarize in order to make progress in the ministry, as opposed to making shipwreck. Of his ministry, a minister should pay pay close attention to himself and to his teaching. First, pay close attention to yourself. If you're going to do that, let me speak under this heading, don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. Pay close attention to yourself as a minister. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. And that's just what will happen. The ministry will turn your attention from Jesus unless you pay close attention to yourself. At first, that command, pay close attention to yourself, sounds rather self-centered and narcissistic, doesn't it? Well, not really, because the Apostle Paul was inspired by God to write to the younger minister, Timothy, and say, "Pay pay close attention to yourself as a man of God. Pay close attention to your relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, make sure... You stay close to him, that you keep your eyes on him. You grow closer to him. You grow more like him. Watch yourself so that you don't let anything, including the ministry, come between you and Jesus. Remember that this command, this first command in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself again, was written to a minister. And they apply first to ministers and then to every other Christian. So the apostle Paul instructed Timothy, I'm trouble talking today, his younger protege, To pay close attention to himself precisely because it's so easy for a minister not to do that. And to be spiritually ruined in and in fact by the ministry. The ministry keeps you from Jesus when it keeps you from hearing from Jesus. Remember that the ministry, according to Acts 6 4, is the ministry of the Word. There's no real ministry apart from the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the Lord speaking to us. And if you don't have time to hear the Lord speaking to you through His Word, something is keeping you from Jesus. I was thrilled one time in the hallway of the seminary. A theology professor and I were talking about a new translation of the Bible that had come out and what we thought about and so forth. And Dr. Muller walked up just about the time and we told him what we were talking about. He said, so Oh, he said, I've uh, been reading that in my personal devotions. And he said, you know, I find it a real good translation. A few other things, and he was gone. But my heart just leaped when he said, in my personal devotions. I mean, here's a man, you know, the reputation of sleeping just, you know, four or five hours a night. More responsibility than any of us can imagine. And, you know, incredible amount of busyness and productivity. But he still made time to hear from God. To read for his own personal devotional life the Word of God. How do you speak regularly for Jesus with power without hearing from Jesus regularly in His Word? But it keeps you from Jesus not only when you hear, it keeps you hearing from Jesus, but talking to Jesus. When the ministry makes you too busy to talk to Jesus, you're not paying close attention to yourself. I ask you, are you still a man of prayer? Acts 6-4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. My mother was on a pulpit, in her church, and interviewing a candidate to be their interim pastor. And asked him to describe his devotional life, he said, oh, I don't do that anymore. And that's far more common than we realize. If you don't have time for unhurried, long-lasting time with Jesus, your life is not only too busy and complex. Chances are you're being deceived Paul wrote of this concern to the Corinthian Christians when he said, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of what? Devotion to Christ. With all the busyness that can be involved with the ministry, there's a simplicity and purity at the heart of it, this devotion to Jesus. And that comes first and before everything else. And the ministry will take you away from that because the most important things in life, the most important things in ministry don't have deadlines in many cases. Time with the Lord, time with your family, there's no deadlines on that. But other things in ministry do. And so we pay attention to things that have deadlines because that's the visible things that people can see. And there can be this erosion underneath to finally the sinkhole effect takes over. And a sinkhole doesn't happen overnight because there's been erosion for a long time. And people, ministers get led astray, get deceived and led astray from the simplicity and purity of, of devotion to Christ. Don't let it become too complex because of your education now, because of the additional tools that you have on your bookshelf and all the things you know you can do and all the different software that you have and the resources on the Internet. Don't let... The simplicity of devotion to Christ gets so complicated and encrusted by all these things that you think to have a meaningful time of being with the Lord, you've got to have all this stuff. There's got to be right circumstances, the right time, the right place, just enough time, the right books, or we can't spend time loving Him as we ought. That's deception. I mean, you get all these books, you get this education, you want to use it. But you can come to the point of saying, well, I don't have time to use it all, therefore I don't have time. These temptations of complexity are especially deceptive for ministers. Because as life and ministry gets increasingly complex, devotion to Christ may not seem as essential for someone with our ministry skills. And with our theological education and our years of experience, and they just don't seem as important as other things we have to do after all. We're called to serve Him in ways that require a lot of time. Ministry is a 24-7 responsibility. There are more and more needs to meet, more and more meetings to attend, more and more emails to answer, more phone calls to return, more visits to make. So why do I need to watch my life and make sure that I stay close to Jesus when everything I do is for Jesus? Everything I do 24-7 is for Jesus. Why do I need to pay close attention to my life and make sure I stay close to Jesus? Some of you would know the name of Martin Holt. He's a leading Baptist in South Africa. And when I was there once, he told me the story. And I said, put that in an email so i can make sure I've got it right. And here's what he told me. The story I told you was about a friend of mine who was a principal of a Bible college who, after his fall, came to see me and told me that on the basis of two things, he fell. He had become so busy in the Lord's work that he simply neglected to read the Scriptures and pray. The long-term effects of this neglect, he believes, led to his adultery. When I shared this with, he names a man a minister from England, earlier this year when he was in South Africa, his words to me were, I almost interrupted you before you told me the two things because I wanted to say that I knew exactly what they were in light of discovering this to be true of every known case of ministerial adultery in the U.K., He went on to tell me that a leading theologian in England, whose once widely accepted ministry had fallen into disfavor, admitted to him that he felt that he had outgrown the reading of the Scriptures. I mean, after all, every time he opened the Bible, he had read that chapter a thousand times. He never read something that was new. He was so familiar with it all. I have come to believe, having... As a discipline, and as a practice, having read through the whole Bible about 50 times, in the New Testament another 25 or so times, and it reached that point where you know I never read something that oh I don't remember that in there before. I, I believe in light of this, when I say you know I, I read it and nothing's new, and you know you're tempted to think why why I read this when I'm so familiar with it, I believe I've discovered there is a a protection. Upon us, that remains even when we don't see anything new, so to speak. Even if, in contrast to what I said earlier today, even if we don't have time, if we don't take the time to meditate on it. Even if you do, just read it, close it, nothing really stands out. You say, I don't remember a thing I read. You know, I spoke against that for an hour and a half this morning. But even that, I believe, the daily reminder of the warnings of Scripture and so forth, just a regular exposure to that. When you are exposed to that temptation, the scriptural warning is so fresh that I think it has an an effect. See what I'm saying? When When you get away from those warnings, it's just not as close to your heart. But when you read a chapter of Proverbs, for example, every day, and when you're tempted morally, and that Proverbs 6 jumps up. I was looking out the window one day through the lattice, and I saw a young man making his way across. And this harlot came out to meet him and so forth. He's ruined by her. When you just read that, that has a protective effect because it's a fresh warning. It's a recent warning. You get away from that, though you can almost quote the whole chapter. Nevertheless, when you've been just recently exposed to it, there's something that is protective about it. Just by reading the familiar passages over and over again. I had a student that I knew very well that was our top student at seminary who I used to teach. And he was discovered to have had an affair with a top student of the next year who was a woman who was also very close to me. And I was devastated by it. And he's out of the ministry now. And um, I was just with a, a mutual friend of both of them. Again, one of my former students who was very good friends with both of them, who still has a lot of contact with both of them. And I said, I just can't believe that these stories I just told you were true of him, that, that he had quit you know, reading the Bible and praying for two reasons. Number one, I just knew him so well. I just had, you know, that he must have gone against the pattern somehow. It just didn't fit with him. Furthermore, he's younger. He's not like all these other illustrations of guys, late 40s, 50s, 60s, who've read through the Bible so many times and so forth. He, he's still a young man in his 30s. And his friend said, no. He said, you know, we've stayed in touch since seminary, and we talk at least once a week, and I'll often say, well, how's it going spiritually? And he said, for a long time, he he told me, he said, not well. He said, man, I just don't read the Bible and pray anymore. I don't get anything out of it. And that was going on before he fell into adultery here. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. Or if it does, the ministry can be your ruin. And let me warn you, especially younger guys, you will have that temptation. It will come to you. You can say, you don't want to happen to me, but it will. I remember when I first went to the pastor in the Chicago area, I was up there six weeks before my wife joined me. And one night, about 10 o'clock, I was at this intersection, Finley and Butterfield. There were three lanes there. Two lanes went straight ahead. Left lane was turn lane. So I'm in the middle lane. Going straight ahead. And waiting for the light changes. Car pulls up next to me, you know, and just kinda of look when it pulled up and the window was down. The woman was in there, she propositioned me. Now, I'm an area of seven million people. I'm brand new, hardly anybody knows me. Who's going to know? My wife's not there. Well, God would know. And my own conscience would know. And I promise you that kind of thing, one way or another, will happen to you. You say, no, it won't happen. I'm too old. I'm too ugly. I'm too fat. I'm too whatever. If necessary, Satan will blind a woman for 30 minutes. She will look at you and see Legolas or Aragorn or Captain Jack Sparrow or someone. Because, see, the the slug she lives with treats her awful uh, and, you know, and, and just is miserable to be around. But every time she sees you, you look great, you're dressed nice, you're acting on your best behavior, you smell good, you're courteous to her, and you're everything to her that her husband is not. And she fantasizes about you and compares you to, to you know, her husband. And just the opportunity to happen. And I'll tell you when it will happen. It's when your wife is very pregnant and or very sick. And things are miserable at home. And so much is falling on you. And every time you walk in the door, it's like the twilight zone. She hands all the children, here, you know, I need sleep. You know, there's nothing to eat. But here, you take over. And life is, you know, just hectic at home. And so here's a woman who offers herself and pleasure to you with no responsibility. And takes stresses off of you that are on you at the church and on you at the house. So it'll be the worst possible time. Satan's not stupid. He knows what the buttons are money, sex, power, pride. And he knows when to push those buttons. If it's not happening to you, it will happen to you. And when it does, may the memory of this moment rise up like a guardian angel in your mind. And when it does, run. Don't negotiate. Don't talk it over. Run. I have a friend. I recommended him to his church about 15 years ago. He's out of the ministry now. And about a year ago... He was having conflict in his church, and some wicked people set up a woman to, you know, call him up and say, I need to meet with you. And everything in him said, don't do this. She kept saying, I, I must. I, it's, it's crucial. She kept putting everything in him and said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But he did it. And she kind of threw herself on him and reached over and kissed him, and someone took a picture. He's out of the ministry today. You know, he violated his own standard, don't ever meet with a woman alone. One time, he did it, and that's it. So, one way or another, you know, and you're you're flattered. At, for the moment, you're flattered. You think, oh, and, you know, he's not an attractive guy. And, you know, you're flattered when some nice-looking woman kind of, you know, appears to want you. And no one else nice-looking woman does, you know. And just for a moment, there's that temptation. And yet, all his years, decades of ministry, all this theological education, it's all gone in a moment. It may be sexual adultery, it may be spiritual adultery to hunting or fishing or golfing or exercising or surfing the net or activism or denominational politics or a hobby or a thousand other things that could lead you astray. From seeking Jesus and His kingdom first and foremost. But it's almost inevitable that one way or another, every minister will be ruined. It's either progress or shipwreck. There's no in between. Pay close attention to yourself. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. Paying close attention to your spiritual life is only half of the warning in this verse. There are some who made a devotional life of great piety whose effectiveness can be ruined in a different way. You can be ruined in the ministry if you don't, as verse 16 says, also says, pay close attention to your teaching. And so I plead with you, don't let the ministry keep you from learning. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. Don't let the ministry keep you from learning. When the text says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, the Greek word is didaskalia, which means teaching, instruction, or doctrine. That's why some translations render it as pay close attention to your doctrine. If you're going to do that, You've got to keep learning. And the ministry can keep you from that. Now, I have guys that come to the seminary who have, with every spare moment, have been reading Christian books, reading the Bible, and they can't wait to get to seminary. And they think this is going to be heaven. Because their job will be the things that they're doing for pleasure now. And so they come there with their hearts quite hot for the things of God. But then, gradually, the shift begins to occur, and they realize that these things are now their assignments. And they have to do them. And there are deadlines now. And they have to do it even if the kids have been up all night. And they have to do it regardless of anything else going on. And if they're taking a normal load at the seminary, they feel like you're taking a drink out of a fire hydrant you know they're in Bruce Ware's class in theology and they're learning all stuff about open theism and they walk out of fifty minutes of concentrated teaching on that and they walk into Tom Schreiner's class on New Testament Greek and then you know it's that for an hour and then they uh, they, walk, they walk into a class with Dr. Moeller the next hour and get more and it's just trying to take a drink out of a fire hydrant and then they go home and then they have to study the textbooks for those classes For several hours and the information overload sometimes is so great that they feel like a man standing on the beach trying to hold back the waves. It just just keeps coming in over them, but I keep warning them that the day they walk out of the classroom it flip-flops. And now once they get out they are a well and everyone in the world is a bucket and they will be drained dry unless that well is being replenished. And it's hard to imagine when you're drinking from a fire hydrant <laughs> that you're going to be drained dry someday, but that's exactly what can happen if they don't keep learning. It's inevitable. It's a nature of the ministry. You're either making progress or you're headed toward shipwreck. And one of the ways we make progress, it says, is by keep learning the things of God. Pay close attention to your learning, to your doctrine. In the last of his inspired letters, the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy, You, however, continue in the things you have learned. Learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. 2 Timothy 3.14. In other words, he said, Timothy, you learned doctrine, good. Keep learning. You think you got the incarnation down? Great. Keep learning. Keep studying the incarnation all your life. Continue living it. Continue learning it. You learned the Bible. Good. Continue learning it. You've learned how to preach. Good. Continue studying. Learning how to preach all your life. This is the way the minister is thrilled. Pat picked me up at the airport. He's, the book was it, Old Testament Theology. Just reading Old Testament Theology. I've been carrying that around. Good. That's, that's what we're talking about. If you don't continue learning Old Testament Theology, things you already learned in seminary, you'll be ruined as a minister. Either ruined in your personal life or ruined in your effectiveness. You'll either be one of those who, who rust out because there's nothing new. It's the same old stuff. Or you'll stay in the ministry and be ruined because it's shallow and it's not effective. I think for a truly God-called man, one of his greatest fears is of his life not... Accounting for Christ, your life not making a difference despite all your efforts and prayers and labors and tears and it not making any obvious difference. But that's exactly what will happen. Your effectiveness will be ruined even if you stay in the ministry. It's almost inevitable if you let the ministry keep you from learning. Men who make progress in the ministry are like those men described in Proverbs ten fourteen, which is wise men store up knowledge. They store up biblical knowledge. They store up theological knowledge. They store up pastoral knowledge. And, and they seek out, just like you coming here today, and store up any knowledge that will draw them closer to Christ and help them to know God better and make them more effective in the ministry. You want to be wise? Well, sure you do. Who wants to say, no, I want to be a fool myself? Of course you want to be wise. Then don't let the ministry keep you from learning. Listen to another observation by King Solomon inspired in Proverbs fifteen fourteen to write the mind of the intelligent. Interesting. Just pause right there. Christianity did an article one time. I remember on this. That said the mark of intelligence. According to the Bible, the mark of intelligence is not your IQ. It's not the number of degrees you have. The mark of intelligence, according to the Bible, is what? The mind of the intelligent, can you finish the sentence? Seeks knowledge. May not have formal education, may not have degrees, but you're, the sign of intelligence is that you keep seeking knowledge. You may struggle to get through seminary, have no seminary training at all, but make progress in the ministry because you pay close attention to doctrine, like this passage says, and you keep learning the things of God. I see others that come out of the seminary and they blow out of there like a steer out of shoot number two. You know, they've got all this promise and all these gifts, but they don't keep learning. And it's just, you know, a flat trajectory for a while and then shipwreck. Because it's always in the past. All their learning, all their education, intentional learning, is in the past. Samuel Hopkins was one of the early biographers of Jonathan Edwards. And he said when he met Edwards, he was impressed by the fact that a man already 20 years in the ministry had still an uncommon thirst for knowledge. He read all the books, especially books of divinity that he could come at. So here's Edwards, considered by the Encyclopedia Britannica the greatest mind that America's ever produced. Who out on the frontier was the smartest man in any gathering he ever went to. He was the best educated man in the room no matter where he went. Whether a group of ministers or in any meeting there around Northampton. Think about that. You're always the smartest, best educated man in every meeting, in every group, all of your life. But he didn't coast. He kept learning. He kept growing, especially in things of God. God. He didn't let the ministry keep him from learning. Edwards reminds me of the Apostle Paul, who in the last chapter he ever wrote, said to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Here's a man with distractions, knowing he's about to be killed, persecutions, responsibilities we can hardly imagine. But he didn't let that ministry keep him from learning, even as an old and skilled minister. He didn't rely upon that. Here's the man who wrote the doctrine we study, but he still wanted to study doctrine. Nathaniel Ray one of the Puritans, wrote a book on meditation. He said, the mind is like a water wheel. You know, you've seen those old mills beside the river, and the wheel is on, you know, always turning. Even though the gears were disengaged inside until they had something to grind, outside the wheel is always turning. And he said, that's the way the mind is. Even when you're asleep, you're dreaming. Your mind is always turning. And so he said, we want to put the best grist in that mill. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, you'd ever think if there's a guy who could coast about studying theology and learning, it's the guy who wrote our theology and who's about to die. So he could just sort of coast, you know, for the next 24 hours or 24 days, whatever he might have left. But no, he said, until I die, I'm going to think of something. What's the greatest thing in the world I can think of? How about thoughts of God? So bring me the books. So, I can put the best possible thoughts in my mind for as long as it lasts. Why I think about junk in the last days of my life? Without this kind of intentionality, you're going to be ruined. It's almost inevitable, and it's also virtually imperceptible. It's that sinkhole syndrome that the erosion goes on without perception until one day it all collapses. You hardly notice. It's like driving from the Rockies toward the Mississippi. You hardly notice most of the time that actually there's decline and you're going down thousands of feet, but it's so slow and gradual you don't realize it until you're at the delta. Pay attention, says the text. Pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. And don't think that, well, it'll get better. And, you know, the ministry won't keep you from learning as it does now. I have seminarians who tell me, man, I can't wait to graduate and read, read the books I want to read. You know, I won't have to read your thinking textbooks. and I won't have to you know, study for these quizzes and exams and all this kind of stuff anymore. I won't have that burden. I won't be spending all Tuesday night studying for exams and so forth on Wednesday. I said, yeah, that's right, you won't. You'll be at a deacon's meeting all Tuesday night. What's the difference? You'll be at a hospital visitation. You'll be doing counseling. You know, you'll be visitation all Tuesday night. What's the difference? The problem is time. And because of the continual increase in the pace and complexity of life, we'll all keep becoming more busy, not less, unfortunately. We'll have more to do, not less. The book I mentioned earlier today, Margin... Richard A. Swenson, a very fine doctor from Evangelical Free Church, says that if you're typical, your life is probably busier and more complex today than it was one year ago today. And he says because of progress, as technology improves, you'll have more and more access to your email, more and more access to different things, and... You know, it'll be more, even more ubiquitous and and so forth. Because of progress, your life will be more complicated a year from now. If you plan to buy, you know, any other piece of technology, you're going to have to learn how to use it. I saw the other day where every one of us has had to learn how to operate 10,000 different things in our lifetime. I mean, right now, you know how to operate 10,000 different things. Your watch, your phone, your spouse's phone, the (coughs) GPS in your car, the radio in your car, the heater, air conditioner. In your car, your lawnmower—you know, on and on—ten thousand different things, half of which I think are the remote controls on your coffee table. <coughs> you have to learn to operate these things. Well, you plan to buy any more technology the rest of your life? That's more things you have to learn. We're going to be more busy, not less. A year from today, you'll be more busier. Things are be more complex than they are today. And this trend will continue every year for the rest of your miserable life. (laughs) Things are not likely to change on their own. I mean, I want to tell Bill Gates, look, I don't need any more features on Microsoft Word. I'm done. I'm not using half of what's there now. So don't make it, you know, don't add more features. You think he's going to say, oh, you know, you're right. We've probably reached saturation level. We're not going to develop. We're going to keep it just like it is forever. Think He's going to do that. No. Why? Because too many people's jobs depend on changing it. And furthermore, it's a big cash cow, you know, he's got to change. It. And I can't say, well, I'm content. You can keep putting out new versions. I'm content with the one I have. I don't need any more. I can pull that off maybe one generation. But you can't do that there's longer a woman who helped manage my website. I send her a Microsoft Publisher document. She couldn't open it because it was a newer generation than the one she had. And so I can't do that anymore. I can't exchange email and documents with my secretary and so forth. So I'm trapped. I have to buy new generations of that stuff, which means I have to install it, which sometimes doesn't work, which I have to learn how to do that. I have to learn how to use these new features. And as a minister. You have to factor in that as your church grows or if you move to a larger church, you have more people's needs to meet, more visits to make, more weddings and funerals to conduct, more meetings than you do now. If, if your church, if your people require X amount of time per year per person, whatever that is, every member in your church basically requires X amount of time a year. <coughs> well, the more people you add, the more of those. More people in the church. That's more funerals. That's more weddings. It's more Friday nights at wedding rehearsals and Saturdays at weddings. Now we want the church to grow. We, you know, we hope that to happen. You say, well, you know, I'll have associates and other people, and assistants who will help do that. Well, you want until you're, you know, you're about to die, and the church finally realizes, my goodness, we need to get this man some help. You know, it's almost right at the end of the rope when they finally relent, and then you have to spend six months finding somebody, and when you get the guy, and if he does his work right, you can find yourself. At the same place again before long because the synergy he adds to the leadership and, you know, so the church continues to expand or whatever and then here you are again. And you add additional staff, that's someone else you have to supervise. And the spiral continues. But let's say that you get to a place where you finally have enough staff. And volunteers to take most of the administrative load from you. Well, by this time, your ministry will have been recognized to the point you'll have a growing number of responsibilities outside the church. People will want to hear your counsel and your influence. They want you to speak at conferences. They want you to write books. They want you to do things in which I hope you'll take advantage of those opportunities. You feel some sense of stewardship for that, maybe some denominational service. Your influence will be sought more on boards and committees. And on top of that, your family is growing. If not in age, also in size. So there'll be more of their ball games to go to and more events you'll want to attend just as you should. So as your days and years accumulate, so do your responsibilities and privileges, kind of like barnacles. So before long, you're brought into a tidal wave that overwhelms you, and that's why it becomes almost inevitable. That ministers give up, burn out, rust out, bomb out in one way or another. And so of 20 or 25 who enter together, one reaches age 65 still in the ministry. And many of those who stay in get ruined. And you wake up one day to realize you're busier than you've ever been. And no deeper in the things of God than you were years ago. You wake up, or at least I hope you do. To discover that you've become a religious professional. A minister with more style than substance. Who knows more about denominational politics than doctrine. Who knows more about church growth pragmatism than prayer. And you become the kind of minister that you once prayed you would never be. That's how it happens. It's almost inevitable. Don't let the ministry... Keep you from learning. Now, there are many ways to further apply this. I want to suggest two. First is to beware the barrenness of busyness. Beware the barrenness of busyness. Increasing rise of the influence of technology allows us to be ever more efficient. And speak here and it can be put out on the internet in a few minutes. Video, audio. So we're more efficient. we now in a situation where we can talk on the phone while we're eating fast food breakfast at the ATM. But not only are we better at multitasking and becoming more productive and efficient. Along with that, there's this increased pace of life required of us. So we hurdle through life faster and faster, becoming busier and busier. You don't think so? Notice... How long it takes for you talking with a minister from another church before one of you says, you know, how you been? Well, I've been, I've been, what's the word? Busy. You'll never talk with hardly anyone, especially some other ministerial leader, for 60 seconds without one of the other talking about how busy you are. So the result is that in our busyness and productivity, we're increasingly efficient at leading meaningless lives. Increasingly efficient. At leading meaningless lives. Resist the temptation to believe in a microwave spirituality or shortcut Christ likeness. I read a book by a guy named James Gleck called Faster. And the subtitle is uh, The Almost, let's see, how do you put uh, I don't have it here. Uh, the Acceleration of Just About Everything. Acceleration of just about everything. It's just some fascinating stuff. How he talked about, if you call the operator for directory assistance, how you don't know it, but how they speed that up. They actually re- record what you say, and they take out the uhs. So, you know, you say, what number you need? Uh, Pat Abendroth. They take out the uh. And then when you say Pat Abendroth, they actually speed it up. So it goes, Pat Abendroth. So when they hear it, you know, it's it's... And it cuts two seconds off the average phone call time. Which over a week means they can talk to more people. And he said, it's just, that's everywhere. But we need as ministers to remember that the one thing that will always be an exception to acceleration is the rate of the growth of godliness. The increasing speed of our machines cannot stimulate a corresponding rate in the growth of our souls. Faster internet connections do not make us or our people more like Jesus faster. You may can help a little bit, but all the technology in the world will not grow an oak tree in six months. And that's what we're after, spiritual oaks. Fruitfulness, whether we're talking about evangelistic fruitfulness... Or the growth of a soul into Christ's likeness comes as a result of paying close attention to your life and doctrine for a long time. Listen to it. 1 Timothy 4.16 again. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both of yourself and for those who hear it. Interesting, couple of interesting things about that verse. It's the only verse in the Bible I know of says do the same thing three times in the same verse. Pay close attention to yourself to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Persevere in paying close attention to yourself to your teaching. For as you do this, for as you pay close attention to yourself to your teaching. I think it's important when he says three times in the same verse. And did you know that every single time Paul wrote to or spoke to ministers, he said that? Acts 20, when he's speaking to the elders, he said... Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock. And he's talking about doctrine there because the next verse says false teachers are going to come in. Savage wolves. And men from among yourselves leading them astray. It's interesting. It the savage wolves, you know, the outsiders, the many hands, they're the savage wolves. They're easy to see. But what he's called the guys who rise from within the church causing false doctrine. Men. They're not savage wolves. They're men. You, your kids play with their kids. You've had a lot of meals with them. They're just men. They're one of us. We say you pay attention because there will be men who rise up teaching false things. And we've already seen it. Timothy, he said this, pay close attention to yourself to your teaching. And to Titus, the other recipient of a pastoral epistle, he said, uh, um, um, pay close attention to yourself with purity of doctrine. No, no, I'm sorry. He said be an example of good deeds. That's pay close attention to your life. Be an example of good deeds with purity of doctrine. So when he spoke to ministers, when he wrote to ministers, it was always life and doctrine, life and doctrine. And we all tend to lean one way or the other, don't we? I have students who love theology. And they think, my class, that prayer, and meditation, Sunday school stuff, I don't, you don't need that. I'm here for theology and the languages. And I have students who love my classes. Oh, that you know, script, silence, the solitude, love that kind of stuff. They don't care about theology and languages. You know, it's too technical. That's not real life. We all tend to lean one way or the other. But we need both. We need both. I I think that's... I I think practically that's the explanation explanation of the success of a John Piper. PhD in New Testament, writes theological books, but unparalleled passion. And who's his hero? Edwards, the greatest mind America's ever produced. Encyclopedia Britannica said. And yet with this... Incredible devotional passion that we read about. And that's the Apostle Paul, isn't it? They had that sense of proportionality to both of them. Also, this is a fascinating verse because it's the only one in the Bible that promises evangelistic fruits. The only verse in the Bible says you do this, you will see people saved. You'll go to a thousand conferences on church growth, evangelism or missions before you hear that verse. And it's the only verse in the Bible that says you do this, you will see people saved. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. It doesn't say you'll see as many people saved as you want. But you'll see true conversions. And again, even from just a a human perspective, without supernaturalism involved, it just makes sense. Who is most likely to make converts to Gandhi? Gandhi. It's the people who live like Gandhi and teach what he taught, right? They're going to make the most converts to Gandhi, not you, right? Why? Because they live like him, they teach him, so they're going to draw people to Gandhi. Who's going to draw the most people to Jesus? Those who live like Jesus and those who teach the doctrines of Jesus, teach what he taught, right? There is a difference (coughs) between activity and progress, I know a man in a minister I consider very lazy. But if I told him that, he'd be shocked because he's busy. There's a difference between busy and being lazy. I mean, he's always doing something. He doesn't just sit around with his feet propped up. He's active. But he's lazy. At least about the things of ministry, things of God. You know, you can be very active and not make progress. I a story about these guys who were on an expedition to the North Pole. And they had their bearings very clear. And they knew they were making progress. They, you know, they okay, we walked 10 miles today. And they were looking, but we're no closer. And then one day they were made 10 miles, but we're actually farther away. And it took them while to realize they were on this enormous iceberg. That though they were making progress toward the North Pole, the whole thing was taking them away. You can be very busy in ministry, and yet it take you away. From Jesus and take you away from learning. You can go 500 miles at 200 miles an hour on a NASCAR track and get nowhere. (laughs) Busy and yet barren. So beware the barrenness of busyness. Second, take pains with the pastoral epistles. I return to the exhortation we started with the words of the older preacher to the younger. In 1 Timothy 4, 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. There's nothing more common for a seminary professor to hear from alumni than, well, boy, they never taught me that at seminary. <laughs> you know, I went through this and they never told me anything about that at seminary. And I want to say, we know that. We're, we're very aware of our limitations in seminary education. Believe me, we would love to have our students longer for a variety of reasons. If for no other reason, the money that comes in, okay? <laughs> so, believe me, we'd love to have our students longer than we get them. And while three or four years of a seminary education can sound like a long time, when you start looking at how much time are devoted to specific subjects and issues, when there's so many to deal with, it really isn't that much. For example, I, I think the seminary in the Bible is 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. That's the Bible seminary. But you know, unless they take an elective class, and it would be an elective in it, that's part of New Testament survey, they may get one or two classes on pastoral epistles. You see, how can that be? Well, when you figure up all the classes they have to take, you know, how much time is spent in the languages, and how many theology classes they have, and missions, and evangelism, and learning how to preach, and spirituality classes, and ethics, and on and on, and you start. Figuring out how much do they actually spend on a given subject in a three-year seminary degree. It isn't as long as you think. So we know there are a lot of things. What we do is we give them a biblical compass and tools to use when they get out there. They're on their own. And that's why they must continue to pay close attention to themselves and to their doctrine, to persevere in these things for the rest of their lives. And I think one practical way to do that, to be absorbed in these things that Paul tells us to, is to read a chapter of the pastoral epistles every day. It's for the rest of your life. Six chapters in 1 Timothy, 4 in 2 Timothy, 3 in Titus. Take those 13 and just read them a chapter a day and just start over. The rest of your life, just keep going live in them so you can live them out. Christian author Os Guinness quotes a Japanese businessman who said, "Whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. The ruin of every Christian minister into a mere religious manager, or worse, is almost inevitable." You're not a manager. You're a minister of Jesus Christ. So be a holy man. And to be a holy man, you must be absorbed with the holy things of God. Not in the past, but always. Whenever I see some of our graduates at commencement, see these guys lined up in their robes. You know, we're in our regalia up on the platform. They're out there before us. You know, it's a great day, but I, I look at them and I feel somewhat, as I imagine, General Pickett must have felt when he sent his troops from Seminary Ridge, where they started, to Cemetery Ridge, where the, where the Yankees were. And he knew what was going to happen. He knew what a bloody charge it was going to be. And I can almost see, I look out there at those students, and I know they're about to charge out of the seminary. I can just see one of them taking a bullet through the heart. I can see a cannonball cutting one of them in half. Another one decimated by grape shot. And I know that in one way or another, just like Pickett knew on that day, when nearly every one of them that was sent up there was killed or wounded, lost or, or wounded, that every one of these guys start well, And they're well-intentioned, but most of them are going to fall in the field before they get to the end. It's inevitable. The world, the flesh, and the devil outnumber you. They have you in their sights. And whether you're fresh out of seminary or a veteran, unless you're making spiritual progress, like spoken of here in the pastoral epistles, you will be hit by enemy fire. But whether it takes you down or not is going to be the issue. It takes down most. So take pains with the things of God. Now, I mean, charge the gates of hell to to your last breath. You do that, you won't waste your life. As Piper says. And so you keep charging, you're going to get hit. You hit it hard. Take pains with the things of God. Be absorbed in the pastoral epistles. Pay close attention to your life and doctrine all the rest of your life. Don't let the ministry do what it almost always does to other men. Don't let it keep you from Jesus. Don't let it keep you from learning. Let's pray. Father, these are sober words. They're sober words for me to say. They're sober words for me to... Here, because I know how I myself am tempted in all these things. How easy it would be for me to fall traveling so much. Lord, I pray for myself as I pray for the rest of us. We are grateful for the Holy Spirit. We realize that in and of ourselves, we cannot keep ourselves. We do not have the power. We do not have the unending resolve. We thank you for the one who keeps us, and we pray, O Lord, that you would have mercy on us and, and protect us even from ourselves as well as from the world, the flesh, the devil. Pray for everyone here to make progress in the ministry, to pay close attention to themselves, their walk with you, to their doctrine. May they be men who stay close to Christ and who Come to things like this and read and learn to grow as a minister and not become stagnant. So many responsibilities. It's such a great temptation to just kind of stay where we are, keep doing the work. Lord, grant great grace to every one of these men. Bless their ministries with much fruitfulness, especially on the Lord's day tomorrow. We're asking Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.